Hi, this is Bob Crump with the podcast Ship to Shore, where we hope to show you how ships at sea relate to things at shore. And uh, our first guest is uh, uh, Michael Carr. Michael has worked in the sea and on shore for uh, many years. He's a graduate of the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. He's uh, uh, a, a diver. Uh, and when I say diver, I, I don't mean a, a scuba or a snorkel diver. He's a, uh, a, a serious uh, certified diver. Uh, he's also, uh, for a number of years, uh, served as the as the captain and master of uh, ships that uh, travel all over the world, big uh, uh, cargo type ships, uh, at times for the for the U.S. Army. Michael, say hello to everyone, please. Hello, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's always great to to talk with you. Um, uh, Michael, you you and I are both talking that uh, I'm a I'm a maritime writer and I've covered maritime affairs and ships uh, and the and the shore side of uh, ships as well uh, for 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 many years. Uh, uh, but Michael and I are both uh, sharing our our need to really convey to people who might be on the beach at a, on a summer vacation staring out at the horizon and and seeing these uh, far in the distance these uh, small uh, shapes perhaps with a little bit of smoke uh, coming out of the top of the of this uh, the, the the pipes there and and uh, wondering uh, exactly what that's all about and uh, I thought a good way to maybe uh, show how the ships and shore relates is is Michael what can you tell us about uh, how you came to do what you're doing uh, you you were like uh, like the rest of us I think at one time uh, firmly rooted on the ground and a and a, a landlubber uh, I think you grew up in the Washington DC area is that right um, yes I, I don't know if I was ever um, a landlubber. Um, so I may be one now, uh, but I, I went into the Coast Guard right out of high school. I went to the Coast Guard Academy a week after high school. And from then, that was 1973. And from then until now, it's been going to sea or been involved in the maritime world. Um, and I think that's just because the short times that I spent on land, I found myself sort of dysfunctional and didn't fit into um land lifestyle or uh, the mode that land occupations take. So, um, yeah, I, it's just the sea has always been sort of where I felt natural. What was it growing up? Uh, when, when did you first sort of feel that pull? Well, my father was a naval officer. And so I, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I know, but I, I, I can't pinpoint you know, the specifics, but I know that his pride of being a naval officer and having served in the Pacific during World War II and what he did as a naval officer, he sailed on destroyer escorts and other uh, Navy cargo ships is what instilled in me this awe of going to sea and the fantastic um, life that being a mariner offers. Um, Not only personally, but in serving. And my father was really adamant about that the finest work you can do is serving your country or your government. And he, he being my father, would, would always say, when people say things like it's good enough for government work, it would make him crazy because he would always say the best work should be government work. And um, so you know, that sort of was a driving influence on me. Sure. Do you remember the first time that uh, you were conscious of uh, land and and uh, and water growing up, your your first boat ride or swim? Yeah, I, we would go to New... Though I lived in Washington, D.C., because my father worked for the um, government there and for the Navy office. We would go to New England in the summers for vacation, and um, we would go to the New Hampshire beaches and there's a group of islands off the coast of New Hampshire, the Isles of Shoals, and we would go out there and take boat rides. There's a ferry that runs out there. And so most of the summers were all spent on the coast or involved with water. And New England, you know, New England is a maritime community, so you can't help 
when you're in New England to be influenced by that. Tell me, tell me what you feel is the distance, uh, the difference in the, in the in the rhythms or the or the cycles at uh, when you're at sea or on the water versus being on the land. You you said earlier you just you never quite felt like you synced up on land, but you did when you were on the uh, out at sea or or near near the water. How does that how does that work from your standpoint? Yes, so that's a good question, Bob. So. The mind of a mariner, the way a mariner thinks, is in an organized, logical, fact-based process. Because you can't go to sea and say to Mother Nature, oh, that storm doesn't exist, or the wind is not blowing, or the rain is not falling. You, You are involved with nature and the world constantly. So mariners tend to be, or the ones I think that embrace that life, are ones that are honest with each other, honest with the world around them. They care for each other because we're all dependent out on the big ocean. So you don't often find that on land where people tend to, uh, are able to protect themselves from reality by putting up fronts and facades and through politics and, and maneuvering, present things as they aren't. And you can't do that out at sea. And so I think you get a certain type of person that's real, that's down to earth and is a problem solver that knows if you don't, you don't batten down the hatches or reef your sails or, you know, pump up your ballast tanks, um, you, you can't avoid the consequences of, of, of lacking um, proper action. I would imagine pretenses are, are automatically and regularly corrected by waves and storms. <laughs> yes. you, you know, you can't blow smoke up a mariner's butt, you know, so to speak, or get away with it. They'll t- you go to any able-bodied seaman and try and tell them something that is not honest, and and they'll tell you to go, you know, go do something uh, um, and get out of their life. So that's what I loved about going to sea is people are honest, straightforward, real, they tell you the truth, and life is much more productive and rewarding. So tell me, when uh, when we're all out on the beach uh, in uh, July and August staring out at the ships and sea, uh, the people who are on the ships are staring out back at the beaches, uh, and, and what are they thinking as they're moving up the coast or moving away from the coast? Yeah, I, you know, I can tell you what I would think. I always thought, I am so lucky to be out here. I am so lucky to be on this ship with this crew, um, sailing the sailing the seas, and uh, enjoying my cup of coffee on the bridge, staring out at uh, the horizon. And thank God I'm not in the on the New Jersey Turnpike, you know, stuck in traffic. And I, I always felt fortunate. I mean, I I considered myself very lucky, and I didn't. I don't think sailors, mariners tend to be pretentious or stuffed shirts. I think though they are hard workers and um, dedicated and have the highest work ethic, it's rare to ever find a mariner who is pompous or overbearing or thinks that they're smarter than anyone else because they know the mother nature has the ruling hand and you can, you can be as, as, um, huffy and as puffy as you want, but um, the next storm is going to knock you to your knees. So you might as well, you know, be a humble uh, uh, a person and do what you're supposed to do. And so I think if that makes any sense, it sort of distinguishes. Um, I, I've heard it said uh, that there are there are two types of, uh, of mariners: those who go to sea to stay at sea, and those who go to sea to come home. Uh, which are which are you, if that statement is correct? Because I know you're. I mean, you're not uh, uh, you're not married to a mermaid. Uh, <laughs> you have a family, I think, right? Right, yes. I do. I have a wonderful so, wife. Well, how did you manage? Great... How did you manage all of that? How did you balance? Yeah, everything. Well, because um, there was no skill on my part. Um, you know, I happened to meet my wife up in Maine. She was working at a boatyard up there, Bass Harbor Marine. Um, working on yachts and working for um, uh, a big a couple of big boat builders up there that build um, sailing yachts. And I met her uh, in Bass Harbor. And I think, 
you know, I was attracted to her because she was another mariner and she was a smart, independent woman. Um, and I admired that. And, you know, I'm, we're lucky we have a wonderful daughter from getting married. Um, so I feel very fortunate. And, and, you know, some people do go to sea to maybe escape a, a life that's not working for them on land, but that, that never works. You know, running away from your problems never solves them. It maybe in for a short time insulates you because you're, you're physically away from the problems, but you get back to land, the problems are still there because you haven't dealt with something in your head that you need to. I think those that go to sea and are successful, they appreciate that they, the occupation and they feel like they're, they're using their lives productively and they're making good relationships and they're, they're seeing God and nature and, in you know, up front and, and it's, it's a satisfying job. So, um, so when, uh, when, when you retired from, uh, the Coast Guard, uh, you, you then started a second career, uh, essentially as captain or, or, or master. I may be wrong about the formal terms there, uh, but, but, because uh, captaining, uh, uh, across, uh, across huge oceans, uh, mil- military ships, I believe for the, for the army, uh, essentially merchant marine work. Um, how how long would you be gone on uh, on those trips? And if I, I'm sorry if I made mistakes there. No, no, no. You know, you're, it's a very good question, Bob. And I I, un, I understand what you're asking. Actually, there's more to it than that. So I got out of the Coast Guard and had um, no idea what to do with my life. So you know, we're talking from high school to 15 years in the Coast Guard to suddenly standing on the beach as a civilian with no clue. And and so I actually, for about eight years, did about uh, a dozen different jobs trying to figure out where I fit in to the world. And I think, you know, a lot of us go through that in life. It's like we try and find out where we fit in. So I worked as a carpenter. I worked as a janitor. I worked as a uh, I, I don't know, a million different things. Um, some of them, the most basic, you know, jobs you would do. And I slowly um, started figuring out what I wanted to do. And I worked for Outward Bound for a while and I delivered yachts and um, finally made myself or made found my way back into the Merchant Marine, uh, upgraded my license and started shipping out and worked for Crowley Maritime for a while and then went into the Army watercraft field. But um, it wasn't, it would be misleading to your listeners to think, oh, it was just this guy knows, knew what he wanted to do and he just went from one to another seamlessly and flawlessly. And it's like, I must have fallen down and had to get up hundreds of times. So, um, but, you know, I, I figured out going to sea was where I belong. So um, that's where I pointed me myself. Great. Got it. Got it. Um, it t- that tends to be how, uh, <laughs> how how life can work. But the the key the, the key part is uh, my father always taught me the the key part was uh, uh, not to worry about the falling, but uh, worry about the getting up. <laughs> um, so um, when when you were doing the uh, the military runs, would would that be uh, you know uh, days, weeks, months at sea? And in the army, the watercraft missions, some of them were months. We, the army has some large um, landing craft that are capable of going and deploying anywhere in the world. So we did voyages leaving the East Coast through the Panama Canal out to Hawaii. And those would be a couple of months. And then there were other operations that are just uh, out in and out during the day, you know, supporting diving operations or um, training missions and um, runs. Um, going places which would be days or weeks. And so it, it varied. It, it was a great variety, and a lot of it just depended on what we were tasked with doing. Um, and it changed. Some of it, you know, evolved. It would start out as one thing and morph into something else. So, Well, if when you were out for, for the long periods of time, uh, what would you, uh, what, what would occupy your time? Was it, was there enough constant work, uh, even mid ocean that, uh, you would be, uh, absorbed by that? Or, um, is, is there, uh, a problem with, uh, with boredom and trying to figure out what to do? Mm, there's never any boredom. I was never bored. I, I, every single day 
was um, stimulating. And I don't say that um, in a cavalier way. I, the, the part about going to sea and sailing on army vessels were all the young soldiers that were so enthusiastic and wanted to learn and wanted to work and wanted success and who many came from backgrounds where joining the military was their only way out of either um, a poverty situation or they couldn't afford to go to college or they came from some background where, you know, the military is going to give me a leg up into being a success. So they were always motivated and wanted to learn and wanted to work. And I just got so much energy out of being around those young people and helping them and feeling like I could guide them, some old, crusty, worn officer uh, as I was, trying to like tell them that this is a viable, valuable, and they're doing the right thing and, and helping them. So between running the ship and keeping things working and completing our missions and training and seeing that people got promoted and um, could move on with you know, their careers, it, there was never, there was never any boredom. It, it was always more to do than you could ever fit in a day. Got it. Got it. Uh, now in, uh, uh, in the lore of, uh, uh, Maritimers, uh, at least at one time, there was always the, uh, uh, the romance of seeing uh, exotic uh, places. Uh, when your ship got in, uh, you had uh, maybe a three to four days, maybe even a week at port as the longshoremen with their hooks unloaded all of the uh, the, the cargo, and you got to go to the Casbah and and uh, uh, all of all of these uh, sorts of notions. Uh, today, not so much, I guess. Uh, did you have a quick turn? I most most ships these days, particular container ships, it's all it's all a huge focus on turn. And if you're if you're there a day, perhaps it's uh, it's a long time. Did you experience that, or did you have time to explore? Right, good question. So um, now that I'm retired, I can I can tell you some good good honest <laughs> answers to that. Which, if I was still on active duty, I might have to say, oh, I don't really know what you're asking there, Bob. Um, so, you know, the military is focused on getting the mission done and, and, and though we try to care for our soldiers and we do care for our soldiers and the military realizes that people are the most important asset, it's often, it has to be, we have to remind ourselves of that. And I tried very hard as a skipper of the vessel to, to find ways to give our, the soldiers on my boat a break because there were times when they would work. Um, days, hours, weeks with little or no break. And I'll give you an example. We used to make runs to Puerto Rico from Port Canaveral, Florida, down to Puerto Rico, running supplies and missions. And I would often pull into Miami on the way down or the way back to the Coast Guard base there to, to dump trash or get water, or get fuel, and give the soldiers, you know, a nine of liberty in Miami. Um, and it, they loved it. You know, I it, it was their one reprieve of... Um, long, long hours. And so it's not like the days of uh, maybe the sand pebbles where you have a riverboat steaming up the beautiful Yangtze River. And you're, you know, you're absolutely right, Bob. These days you're pulling in the commercial ports, military bases. And as soon as you get in, you're still working. And our, our, our system is designed that, you know, if, if you can't account for getting something done, then, you know, you're, you're idle. And so you, if you're the leader, you have to find ways to give your soldiers a break. Uh, and I tried to do that. I, I realized we're human beings and you need to be able to say, yeah, you know, chief let us pull into Miami and we got to go down to South beach and have a espresso at the news cafe, you know, and it's not ever built into a military plan. So you have to make it happen and you have to find, and I, I, I pushed the limit. I, I would did things at times that probably I maybe would have been frowned on, but I, I say with a lot of pride, I always put my soldiers first. I put the mission first and then I put the soldiers first. And I, because without soldiers, you don't get anything done and you have, you have to remember that. Got it. 
Got it. Um, let's go back a little bit in your in your career and perhaps a little closer to the shore. Um, I I know that uh, a, a part of your uh, uh, your email is mud diver. <laughs> where, where does that where does where, where does mud diver come from? Uh, is is that uh, a, a frogman thing? Yeah. So that's a another good question. So in the military, whenever you plan a mission regardless of whether it's a boat mission or a, you know, combat mission, or whether you're an army mariner or a Navy SEAL, every time you, you plan something, you, you do rehearsals and you, you do it over and over and over again to develop muscle memory as to how it's going to work. Because many missions have many moving parts and they're complicated and they require things to mesh perfectly. So a lot of times when you do something, you do it on land and sometimes you just walk out to the parking lot or the field and you say, all right, let's just rehearse this. You you stand here and you stand here and this is how it's going to go and let's just walk through it. And and we call that dirt diving something because you're doing it in a dirt yard or if it involves water and land, you might be mud diving it. And it was like, let's go mud dive this thing. Let's go out and walk around and touch and feel and and I'll tell you something, Bob, in the old days, the army, when they would rehearse, they had these big sand tables, they would call them, and they have little toy trucks and toy tanks and toy helicopters, and you'd all stand around this sand table, and you remember movies from World War II with the long sticks that they'd move boats around on the big world map, and, and the, we look at that as sort of out of date, but there's a lot of value to that because the human brain responds to visuals. And and touching something and visually seeing what's supposed to happen in, in, embeds in our brain how we fit into something and how it should work. And it enables you to see problems, challenges, refining that needs to be done. And we tend sometimes these days to get so infatuated with computers and technology and fancy graphics that we don't touch, that we just stare at. And it doesn't give us, the the human brain is still a touchy feeling. That's why we have fingers and we have all our different senses because you need all of those senses in order to operate. So whenever I say we, we need to work this out, we need to train and figure out, let's mud dive this thing. Let's go outside and mud dive it and see if it really works. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, um, when did you, uh, when did you, when did you become a diver? When, when did, when were you formally trained, uh, in all of the, uh, of the different, uh, uh, skills in, in that was that, that was still while, you were in the Coast Guard Academy or in the Coast in after the Academy? It started before that. It's and many of your listeners might have might remember back in the sixties and seventies when Jacques Cousteau was around. And every Sunday night there was a TV program, The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau. And it was uh other, that program and then Mike Nelson's Sea Hunt <laughs> were probably I was just like, thinking Sea Hunt, yes. Yeah. We're, were captivating. And I remember watching those as I was growing up. And I remember watching Jacques Cousteau and the Calypso and his little submersibles and thinking that was just the most amazing, um, amazing thing in the world. So when I was still in high school, I took a diving class and became a certified recreational diver. And I dove as much as I could when I was in high school. And then when I went joined the Coast Guard, um, the Coast Guard had, back in the 70s, the Coast Guard had divers. Now, this is before rescue swimmers came along. There were no rescue swimmers in the Coast Guard, but the Coast Guard had divers on icebreakers and divers that would perform other functions, um, repairing lighthouses and doing ship husbandry type work. And um, I thought, I'm gonna, I really want to become a Coast Guard diver. So after the academy, I went to a ship, uh, which all graduates have to do. Uh, I don't know if they have to anymore, but at that time, everyone had to go to go to sea. I went to sea for two years, and I put in a request to go to dive school. And um, 
fortunately, uh, I was selected and I went to Navy dive school. Uh, now, is this, the same, is this the same school that Robert De Niro and Cuba Gooding went to? Yes. <laughs> yes. The same school. All right. And, and though at the, it was no longer, um, the school was no longer in Bayonne, New Jersey. It was when I went through it, it was at the U.S. Naval Yard in Anacostia in Washington, D.C. or was in on the Anacostia River, but we were still diving the Mark V brass helmet. Yeah. Um, it, it was a grueling um, four months, and it's, um, um, it's the same routine that Cuba Gooding went through. Uh, uh, and I, I was so proud of being selected to go. And as everyone else in my class said, um, you know, we're either going to drown or we're going to graduate. We're not going to, nobody's going to ring the bell and, you know, give up. Um, and I went through Navy salvage school. We dove the Mark five, the, we did scuba, we did salvage and demolition. And, uh, after four months I graduated and was assigned to a coast guard dive team in Elizabeth city, North Carolina. And I spent, uh, close to five, six years down there as the diving officer on this 13 man dive team. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and, uh, when you're doing salvage and things like that, um, you're, you're really, really that can have an impact on the shore if the salvage isn't done correctly. I'm imagining, uh, and, and my guess is that one of the divers roles there, uh, if if not specifically something you did, but something that Coast Guard divers do is to when a when a ship goes down or is wrecked or whatever, you you, you probably have tons of bunker uh, that need to be uh, pumped off and and things like that. Um, did can you speak to the to the role of pollution control? Yes, either either by divers or the Coast Guard oh, in general. Oh yes, very. Very much so, and it's sort of near and dear to my heart. It 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 impassions me because during those years I was on the so this dive team was part of um, what the Coast Guard called at the time the National Strike Force, which was formed to help during the sixties and seventies to enforce and um, and provide solutions to the to the water pollution problems and and pollution problems of our seas that were rampant, and we had. Um, this is before the Clean Water Act, when the Clean Water Act was first, um, when it passed, and we, you know, the EPA was this new um, uh, executive branch, and we, the United States was feeling the importance of cleaning up and protecting our waterways. And the Coast Guard was given a huge responsibility to enforce and provide a response capability for vessels that were carrying oil and chemical pollution. So, and this is the day days before double hulled tankers. Before there was a lot of, I, I think, very needed regulations and oversight in the transportation of these dangerous commodities. So we responded to literally hundreds of tank barges going aground, tankers having issues where bunkers either would go, potentially could dis- be discharged or were discharging, and we had to patch pump. Uh, a work with commercial contractors, ships would collide and fires would start. Um, and the Coast Guard spent millions of dollars developing pumping systems and booming systems and ways to respond. And um, yeah, I could regale you for hours on stories where we went um, to responded to barges that had um, lo- been lost from a tug and tow, gone up on a beach, potential for breaching the hull and needed to be pumped out. And we would go and middle of storms and rig up pumps and divers would go in the water and patch holes. And um, it, it has a significant impact and it's not seen by those on land um, because unless the oil ends up on a beach, then, you know, you don't see the fact that it was um, prevented. But if people remember back, you know, in the, in the days of the Santa Barbara oil spill and the Argo merchant and the Burma agate, and um, there was, tankers and spills and we used to allow tank ships to pump their bilges over the side you know you were allowed to wash your tanks and pump the the ref the the oily water over the side and it it was awful bob the the 60s and 70s were a real awakening for us and um i was proud of the fact that coast guard and 
in a small part, our dive team was on the forefront. And I, let me just add something. We also responded to hazardous chemical spills where there were chemicals that could have gone in the water. And we would we had suits, protective diving suits that we helped develop with NOAA, National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration. They have divers. We worked on developing exposure suits so we could dive in hazardous chemicals to, to deal with those. Um, tire fires. Let me just add one more thing. You know, before we started recycling tires, there, there'd be huge dump sites where tire, old tires would pile up and they would catch on fire and the oily residue would then spill into streams and waterways and make it into the navigable waters of the U.S. And we would respond to tire fires and and um, dam rivers and pump the oil and work with EPA. Um, so anyway, it, it we did a lot. And it, as the Coast Guard is mandated to do, we responded to anything that involved the navigable waters or tributaries to the navigable waters of the United States. And uh, I thought that was a really, a truly... A magnificent mission to have. Yeah, it, it it's great. I, uh, I I'm amazed at how much the uh, uh, the waters have cleaned up. I mean, people don't think about it that much, but uh, having worked in the area of the of the Delaware River, there there was a time during and after World War II where where the Navy would be actually reluctant to bring up its ships into Delaware, into the Philadelphia area, because the the water was so bad it would it would turn the brass black. <laughs> it really was it really was that bad. Uh, but that that is uh, is a triumph of uh, uh, the modern modern day. We we see a lot of things that are wrong, but gosh, the waters have have gotten a lot uh, a lot better. They are much better, and and I don't want to sound cynical, but I, we, it it's not a system where once the waters are cleaned up, it's like you can check the box and say, oh, we're good, and and I see one of the one of the things that impressed upon us when I was in the Coast Guard is that there are acute problems and chronic problems, and people, when you touch a hot stove and you get burned, it's very acute and you see it and there's a tangible result and you go, don't put your hand on a hot burner. But with chemicals and oil, it's a chronic problem where parts per billion and parts per million that you cannot see, you cannot touch, you cannot see today cause cancer and problems and contaminate our water source. So people are reluctant sometimes to say, what's the big deal? Why should I recycle? Or why should I not pour my used motor fuel down the storm drain? What's the big deal? Solution, uh, dilution is the solution to pollution. And it would make me crazy. And I think it makes most people crazy that being a steward of our environment is like a constant everyday, small, small actions have huge long-term consequences. But Educating people to that and making people aware that all of us play a role in this, it's, it's a constant task. And I think we're at some, we may have lost some of that today where we are saying, you know, why is Roundup so bad? It kills weeds. Well, you know, it is really bad, awful stuff and we shouldn't be using it. So I hear you. I hear you. So, I, I mean, particularly in the uh, in the diving area, I mean, you've impressed him, uh, upon me in this interview that, you know, you really you, ha- you have to uh, really approach these things as really logical. You you really have to uh, to, to make plans. And and uh, I mean, that's generally how you operate, right? Yes, you have to be. So you have to be meticulous and you have to be anal compulsive. And what what a lot of people that aren't divers or mariners see is that, oh my God, this guy is so, this person is so uptight, every little detail. Why do the pencils always have to be in this place? Or why do you always put this in certain, but that's how you make sure you have mission success. Because if you're working underwater and you have tools and you drop your crescent wrench and it falls to the bottom of the ocean and you're supposed to be tightening these bolts and you have X number of minutes to get it done, you can't say, oh my, oh, that I should have tied off that wrench. I was a little, you know, I wasn't paying attention. You can't be that way. So I, I think what divers and mariners tend to be is very thoughtful, meticulous, 
thinking four steps ahead of time, taking you know, you really, you really can't let emotion because it's not that you can't let emotion. Up. Yeah, you can't let emotion get in the way, right? Yeah, and you have to be. The only emotion you can have is to be impassioned about the people you work with and getting the job done. But you, at the same time, you have to say we got to do it right. And, okay, okay, yeah. Mister. Okay, Mister. Logic, I've set you up for this. Okay, good. Uh, I, 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 I want to take you back to February nineteen eighty three. Okay. And, 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 and <laughs> I know where we're going. So this is perfect. And, and run through the logic of this. Yeah, okay. Because okay. uh, this is really where, okay. <laughs> where we first okay. uh, we first met was this particular incident. Yeah. And uh, I, it's uh, February 1983 and a, a coal carrier called the SS Marine Electric uh, tragically has uh Capsized off the off the Virginia coast, and the rescue effort is uh, uh, right under uh, un, under Michael's nose. Um, and unfortunately, at this time period, uh, the Coast Guard did not have rescue swimmers. Uh, and uh, the importance of a rescue swimmer is that uh, you know, once if a crewman's in the water for long and it's cold water, they can't crawl in the basket or, or, or help themselves. They need assistance. Uh, all of which, uh, all of which Michael knew but on the, uh, uh, on the, uh, as the Coast Guard helicopter was, uh, was, was leaving without a rescue swimmer, uh, Michael stepped forward and demanded to be put on the, on the helicopter as a rescue swimmer. And his, uh, his uh, uh, commanding officer uh, told him that he couldn't. And uh, I, well, tell me what happened, Michael. Yeah, so th- this is great. It's a good story. And it, it also shows, um, it, it shows why I am, uh, I, why we're, we're people and we have emotions and, and we try and be logical and, and everything I said up until now, I, you know, I stand by, but at the same time, we're irrational at times. So here's the, here's well, you did say, you did say, you know, impassioned, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> impassioned counts. Yeah, it does. And so here we were to, to sort of illuminate a little more on what you said. So I'm the diving officer assigned to Coast Guard's Atlanta, a National Strike Force dive team. We are trained to salvage divers. We're we're trained to um, to work underwater and to 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 do a myriad of things. But we are we are not rescue swimmers. And as you said, it's before the Coast Guard had rescue swimmers. So um, this the Marine Electric capsizes. We get word that there are people in the water. And so I my immediate um, uh, my commanding officer, so I'm a lieutenant at the time, and my commanding officer is lieutenant commander. He, I said, sir, you know, we need to go. We need to, and I don't know, you can have to blank this out on your podcast, but I, I'm just going to say it because it's the way way the conversation went. I said to him, I said, sir, we got to get in the, get on that fucking helicopter and go out there. <laughs> there are people dying. And, and, and he would say to me, you know, well, you're not, Michael, you guys aren't, or, you know, Lieutenant, you're not trained for this. And I said, it doesn't matter if we're fucking trained for it or not. You can't sit on the beach and go, oh, I didn't try and save that person because I wasn't trained for that. You know, and, and I have to tell you that, Bob, in the, the Coast Guard mentality has always been can do. And when you go to the academy, they don't say, stay in your lane, only do what you've been trained to do. Don't take initiative, follow the rules. They do just the opposite for a military service. They, they train you to, you're an officer, we're giving you an education, we're teaching you skills, get out there and get the fucking job done. And don't come whining back and say, I couldn't do the mission because the Coast Guard is supposed to save people. You know, when that boat goes out, a helicopter goes out, you, you're supposed to save people, not come back with a million excuses on why you couldn't get it done. So my attitude has always been, been in the Coast Guard and then in the Army, Get the fucking job done, and I, I would get man, manic about it. And because failure is not an option, and I hate it. This is a, and I'm digressing for a second, but this is part of the thing I hated about the civilian world is where there would be all these reasons and excuses and platitudes about, well, we don't do that. It's not in our job description, and it's overtime, and we don't pay overtime, or it's four o'clock, I got to go home. And it used to make me fucking crazy. I'm cursing too much, but it's just the way I am. So 
we're standing there in the in the air station in Elizabeth City. It's freaking raining and pouring and blowing, and there are people dying at sea. And I'm losing my mind because it's like I want to get on the fucking helicopter and at least try and not just sit there and go, well, I'm not a trained rescue swimmer, so I can't do anything. So anyway, we didn't go because the commanding officer said, stand down, lieutenant, we're not going. Uh, And so, you know, that was to this day. So anyway, to to tell you, to this day, I'm. And it's probably why I didn't last in the Coast Guard. And, you know, I got out of the Coast Guard because I didn't get promoted. And I didn't get promoted because, you know, my fitness reports would say this guy's a little bit like a nutcase. <laughs> and and it's true. I agree. You know, the Coast Guard was right not to promote me. I, I was a loose cannon. And I, I many times did things I probably shouldn't have done. And I, I couldn't help myself. It's like... I remember thinking, you know, Michael, this is not going to look good on your next OER. You're <laughs> off to evaluate, but I'd fucking do it and go, God damn it, you know, Michael, what the, what are you doing? And I could tell you stories about that, but I always thought it's the right thing to do, and and it's the right thing at the time. And screw it, you know, if I'm going to go through life always making decisions based upon how it's going to look on my OER, or whether I'll get promoted, or whether I'll become commandant, or then I'm just. I'm just going to be another, like, I don't know. I, it just wasn't my personality. And so I, we didn't go, but to this day, and I think I relayed this to you when you were writing your book until the sea shall free them. I, I'm glad I did that. Cause I, I would have felt awful if I had wimped out and said, Oh yeah, you're right. We're not trained rescue swimmers and we shouldn't go out there and try and save these mariners. And thank God the Navy had rescue swimmers and saved the, 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 the crew from the, a marine electric that they could save. And um, there are times when things are fucking scary and you don't want to do them and you just have to do it. And, you know, it's whether you're stopping on the side of the road to help someone in a car accident and, and you see that the day, oh, I don't want to see blood and gore. I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to keep going because I'm late for my, you know, appointment at uh, wherever. And it, it, you can't do that in society, you know? You, you have to do the right thing. And it, it's not easy. Most of the time, doing the right thing is not easy. Now, just uh, I, I would just add to uh, listeners, it's a it's a measure of this guy that uh, 30 years later, he uh, showed up at the at the uh, Marine Board of Investigation into the sinking of the SS El Faro, which is the 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 most serious casualty post Marine Electric. Uh, and uh, Michael was there and sat sat through the the hearings as as well, and I think felt a uh, a, a real sense of duty to make sure that the lessons of the Marine Electric were 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 carried forward and, and emphasized. Uh, Post Marine Electric, uh, as we alluded to earlier, um, the uh, the Coast Guard did form its. Uh, uh, now famous uh, Coast Guard rescue swimmer uh, team, and I and I think there's like twenty thousand lives credited uh, to that program. Uh, that night, uh, they had a, uh, a Navy helicopter and a Navy rescue swimmer out there, uh, but of the thirty-four uh, uh, men uh, who were thrown into the water that night of the Marine Electric, only. Only three survived, and uh, a, a lot of those deaths came from hypothermia rather than uh, rather than uh, drowning. Um, so he, I think you, know, you, you definitely had the right instincts, sir. Uh, I don't know if you would have survived the night, but you, you had the right instincts. Yeah, I, and you know, I tell you, Bob, and I'm not, I, I'm not trying to um, make this about me. I think any one of the guys on my team would have done the same thing. And I, I, I think when you, when you join an organization, like we all joined the Coast Guard, we volunteered to do it. We volunteered to go to dive school. We volunteered. None of us were ever forced like, oh, you have to, at any time, any of us could have said, this is doing this stuff is too scary. I don't like it. I want to find a different job. But my feeling was if you, and when we did a lot of other things that were like really on the edge and I look back on it and go, Fuck, we could have been killed doing that, but we did it. Um, going out and salvaging helicopters and rescuing people off of ships when um, it wasn't really our job description, but it's like 
or if, if we don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. So fuck it. And we didn't do it in a reckless way. We always did it methodically and thought out. And before the days of formalized risk assessment, you always you looked. It wasn't Sylvester Stallone jumping out of the hell. It was like, how can we do this and make it work? We want success. So it was always methodical and well thought out. But you had to just do it. And if you didn't want to do it anymore, you could easily say, I don't want to do this anymore. But as long as you're there, then don't, you know, you got to be all in or all out. You can't be picking and choosing what you want to do. Coast Guard is one of the one, one of the great agencies, uh, branches of service in the in the in the states. I've certainly uh, been critical of them on some things and cross swords with them. But uh, there's really uh there's really no other uh, agency or branch of service. Uh, you, you you look at uh, you know New Orleans after Katrina too, for example. It's just uh, her- heroic stuff and 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 really really wonderful people. Yeah, and can I add something to that, Bob? Because I think there's a yeah. So before the Coast Guard was part of Homeland. Um, defense. They were they were in the Department of Transportation. Um, weird place for them. A, a service, a military service that is doing operational and and real world work every day within the Department of Transportation. That is mainly a regulatory organization with with other you know the FAA and the Railroad Administration with all people that produce rules and oversight and inspections. And he, here's this key that the Coast Guard does very well in the operational, tactical, get out there, save people's lives, save the environment, take care of people. The old slogan, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Very altruistic. We're here for the greater good. Where the Coast Guard fails, and I I say this without any reservation, is in the regulatory end of things. Because I worked at Coast Guard headquarters for two years, which is where I ended up ending up then having to get out because of not doing very well. But the Coast Guard as a regulatory agency fails because they don't have the skill to operate within the political bureaucratic environment where they should be saying to to agencies they regulate, the Merchant Marine, ABS, you need to put lifeboats on these ships that work. And that's it. No discussion. Get it done. And the Coast Guard would always be tamped down by the head of the Department of Transportation or now, and this is my personal opinion, the head of Homeland Security, who is dictating to the Coast Guard uh, how they shall behave. And it, it, it inhibits, it prevents the Coast Guard from reaching its full capability. And if you just want to bring it up to modern times, why is it that the Coast Guard has one broken down icebreaker down in Antarctic that that can barely work and yet we're we're trying to build some stupid wall along the Mexican border and I'm just yeah it's uh, I I mean just for uh, I you know I don't I, I don't particularly want to uh, get into into uh, wall wall politics right. in in this but I'll just I'll just give you an example of Funding priorities. I think all of the Coast Guard costs around ten billion dollars a year. Right. Um, so that's why, however you stand on the wall or immigration or whatever, uh, that that's that's why I would recommend everyone look at what uh, you know what what you can do with five billion dollars. Right. You know if. Uh, and I didn't mean to hijack the conversation. No, 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 no. I, 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 I just, I just wanted to make the point because it always, uh, it right. always strikes me that uh, they, they, the Coast Guard does so much with so, such so a right. relatively little amount of money, and I, I don't want to be casual about ten billion dollars. I don't have it, uh, right. but you, you know, it's, uh, it, it's something that uh, Bill Gates could easily fund. You know? yeah. uh, and, and perhaps should I'm not sure uh, let's uh, we're, we're running uh, close to uh, time uh, here um, but uh, let me get to one other area of your expertise we were both down at the SS El Faro hearing and for those of you who don't know the uh, the El Faro went down in Hurricane Joaquin on October 1st 2015 and the Coast Guard Marine Board of Investigation uh, found that certainly the captain uh, ought to have been more careful getting near the hurricane, uh, but uh, but there are also some some things that were seriously wrong about the way the company uh, operated the ship and and uh, how 
it 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 was uh, allowed to be configured. But the thing that uh, uh, Michael uh, does, among other things these days, is he uh, he teaches courses in uh, extreme weather and uh, uh, and and how uh, uh, captains and other officers should. Uh, navigate and handle handle extreme weather, uh, and his words to me on on the El Faro was, uh, uh, you, you know, the the best thing. Uh, if you don't want to get gored by uh, the bull, just stay out of the arena. Period. Don't 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 go into the arena and say, oh, they told me the bull would be at the other end of the arena. You're the one who decided to get into the arena. Uh, but uh, tell me a little bit about uh, extreme weather and navigation. All right, so um, you know, weather is the weather affects you every day as a mariner. It's it, it, it the seas, the wind, b- vessels go slow. You know, airplanes fly very fast. The duration of encounter. So the keywords are duration of encounter. On an airplane, your flight is three or four hours. You fly through the weather. You can navigate around the weather. You can divert. You have an advantage due to the speed of the airplane but a boat a ship plods along and and the weather overtakes you it impacts you and days and weeks of of an ocean passage you're dealing with the weather all the time so it's it's a top priority and a good vessel master is looking at the weather days ahead of time before departure every day multiple times a day during a voyage and is should never be complacent or cavalier about what's going on, the wind, the seas, what's going to overtake us. It's a constant, um, a constant iterative process. So a good, and then you, some weather you can't avoid and you figure out how to deal with it. And if you have to turn around or divert, you take early and effective and substantial action. This key, those are key words. Every mariner knows, you know, um, being proactive, being forewarned, being forehanded, uh, meaning, you know, thinking ahead and developing a actionable, workable plan and do it. And that's why ship's masters are, should be and are held in such great esteem is because these are people that take care of uh, ships and cargo and their crew and do it with great skill. All right. So having said all that, when, when you're in the El Faro situation and you're sailing in a hurricane um, region, you need to be watching that. And and if you're not watching that, or you're making decisions based upon inadequate information or outdated information or too cavalier, then you get into trouble. But the problem is, or the challenge is that these big shipping companies, the crews for these ships are hired from unions. And the unions make bids to the shipping company. And they'll say, okay, for X number of dollars, we will do a five-year contract and we will supply crew members to man your ship. And and that that cost of that contract includes the cost of training those mariners. Now, if the union says, oh, we need to send all our mariners to hurricane avoidance school and heavy weather sailing school, and uh, we need to send them off for a week here and a week there, and we're going to pay them and that's going to add then that adds to the cost of the contract. And so then shipping companies say, oh no, we don't want to pay that much. Why do they need all that extra training? And they start bartering back and forth. And that's how the real world works. So what happened with El Faro, those mariners weren't fully adequately trained in hurricane avoidance, uh, heavy weather avoidance, understanding weather weather routing and weather um, tracking systems, and they weren't given the tools that they needed. Um, and so they made flawed decisions, uh, which if you read the report, you know, illuminates that. And I, I think if we, if we really want to learn something here is that when you go to sea, you have to be properly prepared. You will never be fully educated. There's always more than you can learn that you can learn. And that shipping companies have to put more emphasis on the training of the mariners and not just on schedules and timelines and quarterly profits and what's the best best deal we can get for manning these ships and um anyway i'll stop there that's that's a big lesson from the alfaro 
Now, uh, we're getting uh, uh, close to our allotted time, uh, and uh, I, I, the, uh, the, the concept of the podcast here is, uh, or the title is Ship to Shore. We've talked a lot about uh, 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 ships, and, and uh, what, what's your favorite part of the shore? Where, uh, I know you're, uh, you're in Florida these days. Uh, where, do you, where do you hang out? Ah, <laughs> Oh. Where, where do you where do you go to watch the ships? Oh, so you know, well, I I try and hide inside my house and not deal with people as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so I live in South Florida these days, and I I um I go scuba diving, recreational scuba diving, quite a bit. And I'll uh, to seriously answer your question, what I enjoy as much as the diving is getting on the dive boat with other people and the the trip out to the dives the, the loading of the gear the social interaction with the other divers the ride out to the dive site and then the dive itself but then the ride back in where you are sitting with other people that appreciate the ocean understand the the what goes on out at sea appreciate the weather and the wind and the clean air and the the wreck and the fish and that that the world is 70% water and it's it's part of us it's it, it's who we are and the camaraderie that comes from that social interaction which is so different than what you get many times in land based activities where i think there's too much um, falsehood and posturing and um, trying to present an image that is just all false. And I think going to sea um, makes people real. I think there's this sweet spot where you where you're in a in a transition from uh, from land and and you're uh, even just moving to the beach. You've, you've entered a different world. You're you're at the edge of a of a wilderness and. Uh, and, and somehow our, uh, our our minds, our brains sense that, and we we go on a different um, sort of uh, cycle, and and uh, in, in in just generally in the in the coastal areas, uh, but but certainly as you as you describe it, as you're transitioning out to 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 a dive site, that's got to be great. Um, now you did uh, you did one dive uh, on a on a ship that had been that you had actually been on. Oh yes, oh that was, yeah. So uh, when I was a cadet at the Coast Guard Academy, we would go on summer cruises, and one of, on one of the summer cruises, I sailed to Europe on the Coast Guard cutter Duane, um, which was a, a high endurance cutter, World War II era um, vessel, and. At the time, I sailed on her since 70, 1975. She was a beautiful, well-cared-for, immaculate um, Coast Guard cutter um, and, uh, you know, queen of the fleet. Uh, and since those days, you know, she, the new ships have come along and she was decommissioned. And um, she was sunk in, uh, I've forgotten what year, but probably in, uh, uh, in the 80s, as a reef in off of Key Largo, Florida. Um, and so after I retired from... Um, in the military and we moved down here i said oh my god the duane's a reef i'm i want to go dive in her so she sits in 130 feet of water off of key largo and i i made it you know i i took a trip down there and i uh i dove on her and it was uh it was a spiritual experience bob um because you dive down in this crystal clear water and i I went inside the bridge and I swam along the decks and went back to the fantail where we would muster every day at 1300 for officer's call. And I, I became a qualified underway OOD on the Duane when I was a cadet. And I stood on the bridge um, in my scuba gear at 130 feet thinking, oh my God, 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, I was a cadet trying to learn how to drive a big ship. And um, it, it, it meant a lot to me in that there are things in, in life that just, they have continuity and they, they build and they, they weave this jigsaw puzzle, but you don't know where you're ever going, but it all falls into place. And I don't know, I took great pride in having sailed on that ship and realized that all that effort and all those long night watches and learning that skill, there was a purpose to that. So it, it was, it was like, Holy mackerel, here I am on this ship and 
it's magical so well that's a that's a good spot i think for us to to wrap up right on that on that point and uh, michael i really uh appreciate your time here uh this has been uh bob frump maritime writer and author uh speaking to michael carr uh, former U.S. Coast Guard officer, a, a diver, and uh, a, a captain of uh, ocean-going vessels. And uh, Michael, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Bob, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, we could go on for hours, I think. <laughs> we could. <laughs>